Good morning. Once known as U.S. President Richard Nixon's hatchet man, Charles W. Colson boasted, I would walk over my own grandmother to ensure the re-election of President Nixon. During the days of the Watergate break-in scandal, his dirty political tricks eventually caught up with him. And Colson pled guilty to obstruction of justice and served seven months in a maximum security prison. During that time, he converted to Christianity through the testimony of a friend and on reading C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity. His daughter, Emily Colson, described her dad as a transformed man. My dad was radically different, she said. A new heart, a new creation in Christ. Colson left prison in 1975, committed to taking the gospel to prisoners and their families, and he initiated the Christian Prison Fellowship. Colson, the dirty tricks artist, was restrained by judicial justice, rebuked by the Holy Spirit for his unbelief. And his huge drive, intellect, and maniacal energy was redirected from the service of Richard Nixon to the service of Jesus Christ. Another hatchet man named Saul was restrained in his vicious, maniacal persecution of the early church by the appearance of the risen and ascended and glorified Lord Jesus. The Lord rebuked him for his stubborn unbelief and redirected him to become the missionary and apostle Paul, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 26, Paul tells his story before the Roman governor Festus and Judean king Agrippa II. Paul, at that time, was a political prisoner under the Roman uh, government in protective custody in the coastal city of Caesarea. The Jewish council in Jerusalem had called him to trial for supposedly having brought a Gentile into the Jewish temple and also for declaring in the name of Jesus the Nazarene the hope and resurrection of the dead. The Jews wanted Governor Festus to return Paul to Jerusalem for trial, but uh, secretly they plotted to kill him on the way. Paul, a Roman citizen by birth, and for that reason under Roman protection, told Governor Festus, if none of these things is true, of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul's appeal to Caesar, the Roman emperor, was the equivalent of saying, I don't want to undergo trial by the Jews in Jerusalem. I appeal to the Supreme Court in Rome. 
Paul's appeal to Caesar eventually sent him to Rome on what we call his fourth missionary journey. Shortly after that, King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice came to visit Governor Festus. Agrippa was the Roman king over the larger Jewish area of Judea. He was the last of the Herod line of kings. And he knew a lot about the Jewish religion and practices. Festus mentioned Paul's case to him, and King Agrippa asked to hear him. So the setting is this. Paul is in chains as a political prisoner in protective custody. But he's given a hearing before the pagan Roman governor Festus and the secular Jewish king Agrippa II. The next day, King Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, gathered together. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And here is where we begin our story in Acts 1. Uh, Acts 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Paul narrates his defense in three parts. His life before knowing Christ, how he came to meet Christ personally, and his life after knowing the Lord. Paul respectfully addressed the king and introduced himself as having been a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of the Jews, a Pharisee who believed in the hope and promise of God, that being the resurrection and eternal life. So he proceeds to tell of his story before Christ in verse 9. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities." The phrase being furiously enraged at them bears the meaning, behave as a maniac, locked in a frenzy of rage and fury, completely irrational. How did Paul come to know Jesus personally? Verse 12, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? 
And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The splendor of light from heaven, brighter than the sun that appeared to Saul, was the risen Lord Jesus. With his blinding appearance, he arrested and restrained Saul in his headlong rush to persecute the Christians in Damascus. The voice that spoke identified himself saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This was the same risen and glorified Jesus that appeared to John on the island of Patmos as John recorded in Revelation and his face was like the sun shining in its strength and when I saw him I fell at his feet like a dead man. By his appearance in blinding light Jesus restrained Paul, Saul and stopped him in his tracks at that time, Paul was known by his Hebrew name, Saul. Jesus called Saul out as a persecutor of those persons who believed in him and consequently a persecutor of Jesus himself. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus asked Saul. Then he rebuked him for his stubborn unbelief. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In effect, he said, you, Saul, are a Pharisee. You know the scriptures, and the scriptures point to me. You've seen and known and heard the testimonies of Christians like Stephen, whom you stood by and watched stoned to death. Those scriptures and those testimonies are poking your conscience and your mind and your heart like the pointed sticks called goads that farmers use to prod the oxen as they pull a load. And just as irrationally as the oxen resist by kicking against those goads, you are resisting the Holy Spirit and the testimonies of Scripture and of those believers. Then the Lord redirects Saul with a command. But get up and stand on your feet. It was the same command the Lord gave to Ezekiel when he appeared to him. Stand on your feet that I may speak with you. 
at the sight of the Lord's blinding appearance, Saul, like Ezekiel in the Old Testament, like John on Patmos, had fallen to the ground. You may have been in a traditional school classroom where the teacher addresses one of the seated students and and says, please stand up. I want to talk with you. And then commends or corrects, reprimands or gives directions. The Lord commanded Saul to get up and stand on his feet, ready to respond to the redirection for God's purposes. Verse 16, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Jesus chose and called Saul to be a minister, that is, actually an underling, a servant, and a witness of what he had seen. And at that moment, Saul saw the risen Lord Jesus himself, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Saul had a lot to learn. He would minister and witness to truths that Jesus himself would teach him about himself and his kingdom. Paul, Paul being Saul's Greek name, by which most of us know him, wrote to the Galatian Christians and said, but when God was pleased to reveal his son in in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. All that to say, Paul was not taught by Jesus' disciples or the apostles. Rather, He was taught by Jesus himself for the period of three years. This was Paul's unique experience. And as such, Paul was not inferior to any of the other apostles who by themselves for no more than three years accompanied and learned from Jesus. Additionally, Jesus said to him, you're under my protection from the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul would face persistent opposition from the Jews as he proclaimed Jesus the Nazarene as their Messiah. The Gentiles who worship other gods would also oppose him and his message. And speaking of the Gentiles, Jesus said, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. 
Jesus sent Paul, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are that broad group of people who are not Jews. Paul later reminded the Ephesian Gentiles what they were like before knowing Christ. They were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We don't have to go very far to find people who are separated from Christ, who have no hope, and who are without God in the world. They are strangers to the gospel of Christ. These people are people who live in darkness and under the deception and control of Satan. These people are those who demonstrate by their actions, their thoughts, their words, their rejection of God and their ignorance of his word. They are adrift upon their own imaginations and superstitions, and as Scripture says, they don't know over what they stumble. The Lord sent Paul to the Gentiles to include them, that is to include all of us in his family and his kingdom, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. That's how Paul met the risen, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus. He continues his narrative by describing his life after knowing the Lord. Verse 19. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. At this point, there were two responses to Paul's defense. The first response was an interruption, an spontaneous exclamation. Verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. To Festus, Paul's word, probably especially his mention of the suffering of a Christ and the resurrection, seemed to be those of someone who was crazy, out of his mind. 
But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. And Paul then redirects his address to King Agrippa and calls from him a response of faith. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. King Agrippa responded, In a short while, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The meeting concluded. As King Agrippa, his sister Bernice, Governor Festus, and those who were sitting with them stood up, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Because Paul had appealed to Caesar, from that day he was sent to Rome, marking the beginning of, as we've said, what is called his fourth missionary journey. What is the main point of this passage? The risen Lord Jesus redeems sinful men for his purposes and through them changes lives even until today. So what does that mean for us? Above all, the Lord Jesus is alive. He is the very Lord God who dwells in unapproachable light the very mention of whom should strike reverent awe and respect and submission in our hearts, just as his physical appearance did to Saul. This story is told three times in Scripture, and it tells us again that Christ redeems sinful men for his purposes. So knowing all that, should we wait and expect the Lord Jesus to appear to us in the same way he did Saul, to Saul? In, in light brighter than the sun and speak words that would forever change our lives? Before we imagine we need a similar experience of the Lord to have a life-changing encounter with Christ, let's keep in mind that after the brilliant light of the Lord's appearance, Saul was blind for three days. And keep in mind also that the Lord Jesus will appear in like fashion 
as the scripture says, like lightning that flashes from east to west. And on that occasion, every eye will see him. But unfortunately, at that moment, the day of decision will have passed and destinies will be sealed. So first, instead of a brilliant flash of light from heaven, we and all persons need the brilliant flash of light of understanding of who Christ is. Even more illuminating than physical light, which can blind the eyes, is that light of understanding in the heart and mind. Paul wrote the Corinthians, For God said, Light shall shine, the God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God gives light to understand that Jesus is the brilliance of the glory of God and we can know him through our eyes of faith. Secondly, Jesus changed Paul's life by his brilliant appearance, but he chose to change other lives through Paul's testimony of what he had seen and of what was to be revealed to him. And he continues to change lives through the written record of his word today. He told Paul, I appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. And Paul declared before Agrippa that the testimony of all he had seen was according to the Old Testament scriptures, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. And then he summarized those prophecies that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Jesus changes lives today through the testimony of facts according to Scripture to which Paul bore witness that Christ would suffer and that Christ would be raised from the dead. Thirdly, Jesus himself pointed out to Paul and laid out the results that he desired from his witness. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Jesus sent Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes. That's a description of the awakening and illuminating power of the gospel. To open their eyes presumes that those without Christ are spiritually blind. And scripture supports that. The God of this world, Satan, 
has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blind man's bluff is a traditional game that has been around for probably hundreds of years and is played by children all over the world. You've probably played it. There are numerous variations, but usually one child is blindfolded with a soft scarf and then gently spun around so that they lose their sense of direction. And the other children move around calling out, here I am, here I am, I'm over here. And they keep moving. But sooner or later, the blind player will catch someone and then the blindfold is taken off and put on them and the game continues and starts again. Of course, the area of play must be free of obstacles uh, that would cause the blindfolded player to fall or get hurt. Opening the eyes is like when the child who gropes and stumbles around blindfolded takes the blindfold off and sees clearly again. We must open our eyes and clearly see the facts. Human depravity and sin, the domination of the usurper Satan, and the hope of redemption and salvation in Christ. Opening of the eyes is the result that Jesus desires. Once we see these facts clearly, we must make a volitional choice to turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. It's a matter of the will. It's also called repentance. A 180 degree turn about face from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. What is the difference between darkness and light? In Plato's allegory of the cave, the ancient Greek philosopher depicts people chained to a low wall in a cave all their lives. Behind them lies a thoroughfare for people to pass through, and a fire or a light on the other side casts moving shadows of those people on their wall in for, in, before them. And the shadows are the only way the prisoners can experience the wider world, and to them it, the shadows represent reality. But one prisoner escapes. And then he returns to tell the other prisoners that the real world is far greater than these dark shadows. But the other prisoners reject offers to free them, for they cannot imagine a world being so different. Some choose spiritual darkness rather than light. C.S. Lewis says it's like children making mud pies in the slum because they can't imagine what a holiday by the sea would be like. Not knowing over what they stumble, yet not willing to walk by faith in Christ, knowing and relying on His Spirit and the light of His Word to guide. Turning from darkness to light requires an effort. 
and a choice. It's a matter of the will. You must choose to turn and repent. How can we compare the dominion of Satan to God? Satan comes like a thief to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus came to give life, and that more abundantly. Satan tempts us to be indifferent to Christ, to scoff in stubborn unbelief, to be addicted to alcohol, to food, to gambling and the lottery, to be addicted to pornography and illicit sex, to dabble in the horoscope and the occult. And I could go on. Satan's schemes are like the fishing lure on the end of a line that floats downstream. The lure appears to the trout below, but little does he know that there is a sharp hook concealed inside, and once the fish bites, he's caught. Satan wants to hook us and draw us under his dominion to do his will in sin. Jesus sets us free and gives us abundant life. This is the result that Jesus desires. And we must choose to reject and resist temptation, turn and repent and be freed from Satan's dominion. Once we turn and repent, then we can freely receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins that is not deserved and not earned, but rather freely given and must be received. And this too is a result for which Jesus died and the result that he desires for us and everyone. It's a Wonderful Life is a 1946 American dramatic Christmas film directed by Frank Copra. In one scene, George Bailey is a young boy working in Old Man Gower's drugstore. Mr. Gower receives a telegram informing him of his son Robert's sudden death due to influenza. Grief-stricken, he lays the open telegram on the cash register and goes into the apothecary to fill a prescription. Young George sees and reads the open telegram and in compassion follows Mr. Gower into the pharmacy to see if he can be of help. And he watches as with shaking hands, Mr. Gower mistakenly fills the prescription for diphtheria with pills from a bottle labeled poison and gives it to George to deliver immediately to Mrs. Blaine. When George hesitates and delays delivering the erroneous prescription, Mr. Gower begins to berate him and beat him about the ears. But when he finally re realizes his error, Mr. Gower falls on his knees and in tears thanks George for restraining him from such an error and begging his forgiveness. The psalmist David said, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In addition to receiving forgiveness of sins, there is an inheritance to be received. An inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. An inheritance that includes adoption into God's family and the promise and certain hope of eternal life. How is that inheritance received? By faith in me, Jesus said. They are sanctified, that is, they are set apart by faith in Christ alone. These are all the results that Jesus laid out before Saul and said, this is what I desire from your testimony. Christian, when witnessing to the Lord Jesus, witness to the facts according to Scripture, pretty basic, that Christ died for our sins and that Christ rose from the dead. And then call for the results that Jesus desires that your hearers might open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. You who are not Christians, in the sound of my voice, if the Lord has restrained you in your pursuit of sin, has rebuked you for your stubborn unbelief and resistance to the Holy Spirit, then fall on your knees and with tears repent. Receive his forgiveness. And then stand on your feet and let him redirect your life for his purposes and your good. Governor Festus scoffed at the idea of a suffering Christ and his resurrection. King Agrippa had a near encounter with the Lord Jesus and was almost persuaded to believe the truth. But we have no record that he ever repented of sin and unbelief and was sanctified by faith in Christ. Charles Colson, on the other hand, turned and repented from his former career of dirty political tricks to serve Christ in his kingdom. Paul restrained, rebuked, and redirected by the risen Lord Jesus was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Through Paul, the gospel spread to Asia Minor, which we call Turkey, and was introduced to Europe. The persecutor and destroyer of the early church planted new churches all along the way. 
Of the 27 books of the New Testament, 13 are generally agreed to be attributed to Paul. And the Holy Spirit's preservation of his written witness still results in changed lives today. So, upon hearing these words of sober truth, if the Lord is restraining you in your headlong rush to sin, if he is rebuking you for unbelief and resistance to his Holy Spirit, then turn and repent. And he will redirect your life for his purposes and his glory and your good. If that is so, I invite you to get up and stand on your feet. I know we will all be standing, but figuratively you stand on your feet to hear his word and receive his direction and make it inevitable. Burn the bridge behind you. Make it public. And then in obedience, begin performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Repentance.